Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Today we have the privilege of welcoming Ashley Perry, a strategic consultant, content manager, and creator and public relations advisor to heads of state, governments, individuals, companies, and organizations in a variety of fields and areas. He's also the founder of Reconnector, an organization established to strengthen the Jewish people through a reconnection between the descendants of Spanish and Portuguese Jewish communities and the Jewish world. He is also himself a descendant of Spanish Portuguese. People know me as Ashley Perry, but my real name is Ashley Perez. I'm originally, as you can probably tell from my accent, from London. I come from one of the oldest uh, Jewish uh, families in London. We were officially welcomed by Oliver Cromwell after the English Civil War around 360 years ago. We come from the uh, uh, famous community, uh, Sephardi community in Amsterdam. Before that, uh, I know my family fled the Iberian Peninsula to Hamburg. We were uh, originally from Spain, from the uh, Cordova region. And then in 1492, we fled like most did to Portugal. And then in the forcible conversions of 1497, uh, and we managed to uh, escape a generation after that. So that's, uh, I made Aliyah in 2001. I worked in the Israeli government for many years, still am, uh, working with Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, Defense, Finance, Interior, Internal Security, Agriculture, Intelligence, water, energy, infrastructure, and a few others. My, my great passion and in pretty much any position I've worked in, whether it's with the Israeli government or in the Jewish organizational world, is really uh, creating awareness around uh, the story of uh, the Jews in Middle East and North Africa and the wider story of the uh, Sephardi Jews. I work on a number of projects related to, to both of those, whether it's Reconnecta, an organization uh, I, I created to help in the reconnection of the what's now been uh, defined by academia as over 200 million uh, people in this world, outside of the Jewish world, outside the formative Jewish world, who have significant Jewish ancestry, and how to reconnect them if they seek it. We're not missionaries, so I'm not going off and telling anyone what to do, but those who seek some sort of reconnection, we help them on that path. Uh, and also, like yourself, we're working towards the creation of, for the first time of a national heritage center in the heart of Jerusalem for the history uh, heritage of the Jews of Middle East and North Africa. Uh, I was involved uh, in the creation of the law for November 30th as the day of commemoration for the Jewish refugees in Middle East and North Africa uh, and many other initiatives uh, in those arenas, I should say. So interesting that you're from a Western Sephardi background or Spanish Portuguese or however you want to define it, and yet you have created this law for Jews of MENA and Iran. Why do you have this connection? Well, first of all, because, uh, you know, growing up uh, in London, growing up in a Jewish educational system, when I first started learning, not just about the so-called Mizrahi Jews or the Jews in North Africa, also about wider Sephardi world, I felt that there's something very lacking in the Jewish organization or the formative Jewish organizational world 
the Jewish educational system that just seems to have these large gaps uh, in teaching about this history. And the more I learned about this history, the more I realized it's so important to give internally and externally a true taste and flavor of the mosaic uh, in the history of, of the Jewish people. And, and it's, it's very important. When I was uh, in the foreign, minister, foreign minister's office in 2009, I remember uh, discussing uh, with the foreign minister, with the deputy foreign minister, what's going to be on the agenda. And we discussed and we decided that one of the issues would be uh, to try and put forward this story uh, to make sure that we were aware of it. That's when we wrote a, a, a paper uh, of the necessity to, do, to take certain steps, including to build a, a national museum or heritage center, and then eventually to write this law, but also just to get it on the global Jewish agenda. And I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I said to you before that we're doing a poll on that and the results are hopefully are gonna be imminent on it, because even in Israel, where the majority of Jews come from this background, there is so little education, so little awareness, so much ignorance, unfortunately, on this issue. And that just has to change because if we're going to raise another generation of Jews with a sort of semi-identity, I, I think it's problematic. I think we need to give the full picture of the Jewish experience, historically and even current. And certainly that includes not just in Israel, but around the world, a story of Sephardic and Mizrahi Jewry. And do you think that there is more of an awareness of the Sephardi Jewry besides your, um, your organization? I'm saying, is there a reason that you decided to focus on MENA rather than starting by, to focus on the Spanish Portuguese or the Sephardi in general? Well, I mean, uh, I think that every Jewish experience is different. I am also focusing on that experience with Rekonikta. We talk more about the Western Sephardic diaspora, uh, especially those who went off to the Americas uh, and, and, you know, sort of in Mediterranean Europe. I think there's a, there's a need for, for both. Uh, as I said, I work in, in different fields with different initiatives on, on both of these, let's say, uh, Jewish diasporas. But I think especially today, where the growing global narrative about the Jewish people that we're sort of foreign to this region, we are a European, maybe even colonial people uh, that was formulated this sort of pseudo-nationalism in the 19th century that created Zionism, which unfortunately has become a dirty word around the world. The story of the Jews in the Middle East and North Africa are the greatest antidote to that. Obviously, that's not its central purpose. The central purpose is the story should be told for its own purposes because it's part of our story. But I, I truly believe, and I've, and, I, and I've seen it, that once someone learns about the story of the Middle East and North African Jewry, they can no longer base their, their, their full suppositions that they, that they held before. And I think it, it's just simply a great blow to the uh, delegitimization movement, not just the state of Israel, but also the Jewish people, because we're seeing now that there are many who understand it. Uh, recently, I read that there's this uh, big institutional funding for academics who are prepared to rewrite Mizrahi history from a, an academic point of view because they understand that the story of the Jews in the East and North Africa speak to Jewish indigeneity in the region. They speak to a, a history of thousands of years before the Arab conquest of the region, before it became known as the Arab world. And I think that completely breaks down that narrative that we are somehow foreign or new to this area. And because of that, there are great efforts to delegitimize even this long-standing presence. So, you know, uh, the average Jew, let alone non-Jew around the world, doesn't know about this experience. So it's, it's vitally important that we tell this because 
it just breaks down these false suppositions. Very interesting that you say that there is this academic initiative. I haven't heard of it, but usually the academic initiatives are pushing the opposite way or a liberal way. And that's what I'm saying. No, that's what I'm saying. It's trying to, what they claim, it's amazing if you see the uh, sort of uh, the call for papers or whatever it is, it says that, uh, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it refers to in the Anglo and Israeli sphere. Basically what they're saying is delegitimizing, uh -huh, okay. trying to delegitimize any academic who's from an English speaking country and Israel as if they're two, one and the two. Whereas I would say 95% of all Mizrahi Jews in the world come from an English speaking country or the state of Israel. So they're obviously trying to gear this towards something which uh, delegitimizes even that experience and trying to rewrite history in some way. Yeah, that makes much more sense. <laughs> Sorry. Unfortunately, uh, so you, yeah. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Um, so you seem to also have a very good grasp on your own family history. Were you raised on the stories of being a proud Swahili Jew or did it come later? Partly, I would say. Um, my, my stepmother was a more influential Jewishly uh, influence uh, in, in our home and she comes from an Ashkenazi background. My father was more secular, very proud Jew, very strong Zionist. I lived here during the 50s and 60s and worked with prime ministers and presidents. A very proud Sephardi Jew. So we knew our heritage. We certainly knew where we came from. And we knew, you know, the stories of the Inquisition and the expulsion and the stories of uh, Sephardad were still part of our upbringing, but certainly, unfortunately, not a central part. We, live in a, we, we, we lived in a community where there was only one synagogue. And, you know, and, and uh, which was Ashkenazi and uh, the Jewish school. I went to a Jewish boarding school and basically there was really only one way of doing things. But as I became more interested in my own personal history and the wider history of the Jewish people, I started learning more and inverted at least my customs, many of my customs. Some of them we, we kept as, uh, as children, you know, kidney yacht, uh, one hour between meat and milk, all the good stuff. Important um, ones. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, so now, now I, I, I keep I keep those, and our family is you know, committed to that. This is a Sephardi family. My wife is Ashkenazi, and you know, every now and again she gets her part. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, like like so many households in Israel, we're a little bit mixed, but definitely, uh, you know, my, my my children are raised very much to be proud of their Sephardi heritage and to learn what that means, the history of it, the culture, the intellectual tradition, uh, and the. The religious tradition as well. And when you say that you were raised in a secular home, so did you have any of the um, tunes or the songs of the Sephardi tradition? The only thing I was really familiar with, I would say, is Bendigamos, which is the song that we sing after Birkata Mazon, Grace After Meals. It's a, it's not Ladino. Everyone always confuses it for Ladino because the Jews, the Western Sephardim didn't really speak Ladino. Ours was more of a modern Spanish because we had closer relationships with the Iberian Peninsula. Our Spanish, I say our, our tradition, not, not yes. specifically mm -hmm. my family, evolved and progressed with modern Spanish as opposed to Ladino, which was cut in time in 1492, it's the Spanish of Cervantes. Uh, so the, the Judeo-Spanish of the Western Sephardim is slightly different. So Benigamos is, uh, is, it would be more familiar to modern Spanish ears. And in fact, it was only, I, I believe, created uh, a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, unfortunately, that was pretty much it as far as uh, tunes. So, but I definitely have an affinity to Sephardi 
Mishrahi music, drive my kids crazy about it, which to me just sort of has a vitality all of its own. So, uh, you know, we're trying to incorporate them, even though, as I said, I probably wasn't passed down with too much tradition, uh, but I'm trying to uh, pass down to my kids as much as possible. And now do you live in a mo almost exclusively Ashkenazi community or you live in a mixed community? Um, I mean, I think uh, uh, where I live is, it's probably majority Ashkenazi. There are Sephardim from different backgrounds. There's no Western Sephardi community. In fact, there's only one or two Western Sephardi synagogues in the whole of Israel. Uh, none of them are certainly within walking distance. When I used to live in Jerusalem, I used to go regularly to the old city with one of the Sephardi synagogues, which holds a Spanish-Portuguese minyan once, uh, once a month. I live a little bit too far away uh, from it, but I'm I'm still involved in a sort of virtual sense. You know, there's there's uh, Facebook gatherings and, and and all this sort of thing. There's a great group coming out of London from the Spanish Portuguese community called the Chabora, which teaches a lot of the Western Sephardic intellectual tradition, which is great because today, unfortunately, especially during COVID, we are so distant from each other. So it's great to get together on webinars, podcasts. There are tremendous opportunities. Uh, even during the crisis of the pandemic. So I have to say, I, I probably learned more in the last two years about the Sephardic uh, religious and intellectual tradition than I probably did uh, in many of the years preceding. That's great. And I have to say, also give a plug for the Chabura. They are really wonderful. They've come to speak to, for us a few times and they're coming back um, in March. So I agree with you. <laughs> There's so much there. You say that your children are raised with uh, understanding that same tradition. Is there something specifically that you do in order to make sure? Because they, I'm assuming they don't get it in school. Tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, uh, and, and it's always amusing. Every time one of my kids comes to the first grade and there's the Sidur party, you have to identify on the form which Sidur you want. And, you know, at, at first, you know, it's, I think there was Ashkenazi Safad, which of course is more you know, default uh, tradition, stroke Hasidic, um, and Edotim Israq. So I was... I think in the first the first form, I think I. But I just want to stop you there for a minute. When when they say Nusach Sfarad, which is in a lot of these schools, that doesn't mean the Spanish Portuguese no. tradition. I just want to point that no. out here. It's not even the Sephardi tradition. It's right. it's, a, it's, a, it's an Ashkenazi plus tradition. But uh, I think during the first time, I think I wrote separately Sephardi, and I think uh, my wife sort of crossed that out, uh, and we just went with the Adotim Mizrach because it's. Uh, you know, it's, the, it's the closest, but uh, no, I do, I do try as much in, uh, as possible and inform, uh, you know, my children that there is, that our, our tradition is different. I think someone did a survey a few months ago, there's probably around three to 4,000 people who practice this tradition left in the Jewish world. Uh, so we are a minority in a minority in a minority. And, you know, uh, talking about uh, my choices, you know, that, there, that there's many people who just say, well, it's already dying, let it die. And right. I think that's that's one way. I don't particularly sign up for that. I believe that I could just hand up uh, down to my kids our tradition and hope that they will also then hand it down to at least one more generation. That's that's the most I can do. It's very difficult because there is only one other family that I know of in my whole town, uh, which keeps the same in Hagim. But you know, I, I take my sidur. I put my talit on the way I put it on, my tefillin on the way I, you know, I, I, I do what I do. But sometimes in the Bet Knesset, in the synagogue of uh, 
other, other traditions. It's interesting that you say that you had a choice of which sitter for your children, because I know in my kids' school here, they all have to have Nusach Sfarad, which I don't think anybody in the school actually uses. So it's an interesting True. kind of a... It's true. Like that's, it's, become, it's become the default sort of religious Zionist Nusach. They, they consider it sort of halfway between, where it's really not. It's Ashkenazi with a, a few pepperings of... Uh, something uh, something in there. But uh, no, one of the schools in my town uh, only uh, doesn't give you an option, like you said, and one of them does. Uh, so a few of my kids have gone to that one, so uh, they get a choice. But when it comes to the way things are done and the way things are taught, it's rarely a daughter Mizrach Sephardi. Well, and even that has to be broken down. Like, you know, my son is either going to do Ashkenazi or Yemenite. So that's... Uh... It's, it's difficult to get them all in, but I, I definitely appreciate they at least gave you the choice of two, I guess. <laughs> three, three. Ashkenazi, Sfarad, or Adotam Israel. Oh, right, three. So that's... Uh, um, okay, so now let's take a look back and say you have a lot of gained knowledge, like you said, even over the last two years. If you could go back in time and change one thing or even study one thing differently when you were younger, would you... Is there anything you would have changed in this manner? I have to say, I, I give a lot of credit to Habura, and there's others like uh, Rav Yonatan Alevi in San Diego who have really opened my eyes to, you know, that there's this belief that the, and, and it's borne out by this poll that we talked about it, again, that sort of, you know, the Ashkenazi world is intellectual, it's rational, uh, and the Safari world is more mystical, irrational, you know, sort of all these you know, uh, charms and uh, yeah. Kabbalah and everything, when actually the opposite is true. Uh, the Jews of Spain, especially of southern Muslim Spain, the Rambam, Yudelevi, uh, people like that were very closely related to the rational, the intellectual, the scientific, you know, the idea that you could be a rabbi without having a background in philosophy, in science, in mathematics, in culture, in languages, was just a foreign concept. They, yeah. I wouldn't say they rejected the Kabbalah, but certainly the Kabbalah was not a major element, and in fact, uh, in some of you know some of the great Sephardic rabbis would be horrified uh, at how uh, you know it, it's become such a prevalent part of our belief. Whereas, as I said, and, and sort of, and actually, Kabbalah, the mystical uh, tradition, actually came from southern France, from the Ashkenazi tradition. It was adopted mm -hmm. through northern Spain, but the southern Spanish, the uh, Andalusian tradition, was extremely rationalist, extremely you know highly intellectual. Uh, put a premium on, on, on education, on professional uh, activities. And I think the more that we can learn about that, and I think groups like Chabara are doing a great service by opening our eyes to that, I think really we, we've moved away from that. And I think especially now with what we're seeing during COVID, I think there's a great need for Judaism to return to these moorings because this is where our base is as an intellectual, as a rationalist religion. And I think we've moved too far away from that. So I think the greatest thing I've learned and the greatest thing I'd love to see in the coming years is for us to learn more about this history and this intellectual tradition, because I think it's something that I don't think it's been lost, but it's certainly been forgotten. And I think it's something that we need to reclaim as a Jewish community, regardless of where our ancestors came from. I was going to say, how would you practically do it? And you answered me already, because that's how you do things. <laughs> Practically, the education has to come first, and I believe that, obviously, very, very much so. Um, and my next question was going to be if there's a, something you want the future generations to know about your Jewish heritage, what would it be? And I'm 
unless I'm wrong, it would be that rationalism and the... Yeah, it's, it's to read some of these great philosophical work, uh, works, really read them and understand them. You know, the Guide to the Perplexed, uh, uh, Isaac Oribio's uh, Treatise, you know, uh, just that we've got so many beautiful works that really should be on the shelves of every person who wants to take their Jewish tradition, their Judaism seriously, because as I said, we, we're not this religion that unfortunately we seem to be turning towards or we seem to have been uh, painted as this, this, this esoteric, this mystical, this irrational, maybe even uh, uh, religion, and I think uh, I think it's so important. The more that we can learn from these few hundred years, again, they're rooted. Uh, I would even argue in the Gemara and the Talmud and even the Tanakh, and and I think that we're moving away from that. And I think it's just so important that we're able to reclaim that in, in the future generations because I think it's there. You know. I, I myself have been, I asked, I asked once, um, I asked a few months ago, Sina Kahen, who's the head of the Chabura, one of the brains behind it, if he can recommend one book that, you know, because I love the podcast, but on a Shabbat afternoon, I, you know, I like to right. read as well. And he gave me, he recommended a book by Tzvi Zohar. Uh, I think yes. it's called uh, Rabbinic Flexibility in the Modern Middle East. And it showed the rabbis of, yeah, of, of Egypt, of Iraq, of Syria uh, in the, I think, the 19th and 18th century. And so most people haven't got an idea about anything to do with that. But it really just goes through the, you know, the, the, you know there's this idea that they did, you know, the, the, the Jews of uh, uh, the Middle East and North Africa did, didn't need to confront modernity. They did, but they had an intellectual tradition to go back to the Rambam. Uh, and all these other figures, which they didn't have to confront anything. You know, this idea of modern orthodoxy as if you put religion and worldly education on two parts, you have to blend together. The Sephardic tradition never needed that because there was, no, there was not the secular and the religious. They were one and the same. The intellectual tradition didn't make two separate parts that needed to be welded together. So that's why I think it was much easier for these rabbis who were learning the greats of the Andalusian tradition, who when there was talk of learning philosophy, learning science, understanding the way the world works. It, it wasn't a question to them. They already had the background to be able to accept where this was. It wasn't a great debate. That's why I believe, in part, and certainly not my thesis, people far greater than me have said this, that the reason, one of the reasons there wasn't any great schisms in the Sephardic world because it was, you know, there, there wasn't this great... schisms schism mean like we and, and Orthodox, and Hasidut, and Litvak, and then within Hasidut, and then this, and then that. There were so many different, not to say that there were no disagreements, and of course there were movements. Of course, in Yemen, yes. there, there was, uh, but it, it didn't create massive schisms to the point where, you know, two Jews can't pray together. And it was more about what's good for the community rather than what's on the black and white page for the individual. And I think that, that, that moderation that comes with this intellectual tradition is something which is so important and so necessary, especially today, because unfortunately, extremes, like in all uh, facets of life, seem to be making the most noise, whereas the golden mean really is where should, we should be uh, directing our attention to. That's one of the things I always love about the Sephardi tradition as we're describing it now, or what the way Chabura does is, if you're living within the tradition, then you try to find yes. There's no reason to say no, unless there's a reason to say no. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, that's, a, that's a great way. It's, 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 you know, sort of 
to certain Ashkenazi rabbis, the default position is no, unless. Exactly. You know, when it was uh, when it was the, I can't remember which rabbi it was who said that anything new is forbidden. You know that that concept is completely foreign in the non-Ashkenazi world. It, it's just it's just such a foreign concept. Uh, so I think actually that, almost that, Muslim, if you think about it, because Islam has that in it. So it's interesting that. No, but even in the, I would say even in the medieval intellectual, uh, Muslim intellectual tradition, it's also very open, very tolerant, very rationalist, very moderate. It was, but in uh, the in the in the hadith, it says you can't start anything new, which is why even when bicycles came out, they had a problem allowing bicycles or airplanes or anything because it's in there. But yes, like you said, they're open, so you can open it up, and that's right. I think that's part of also the Sephardi heritage is you can be open to it, finding the way. To say yes exactly exactly is there something else you want to that you can share with us you talked a little bit about the poll you talked a little bit about your um but i don't know if you're able or open to talking a little more about the poll because you kind of mentioned it and we we talked about sure. it before <laughs> i mean i mean the results the results will hopefully be out in the next few days next couple of weeks but we really wanted to understand especially in israel we're starting in israel it could be that we'll also do similar polls in uh, the us uk and elsewhere is to understand how much or how little is really known, is taught in the educational systems about um, non-Ashkenazi Jewry, non-European Jewry, how much is understood or how much needs to be understood. We also ask people if they think it's important to teach the story, uh, the history and the culture of Middle East and North Africa Jewry. Do you believe the culture and history of this community is equal to greater or lesser than the, the story uh, history and culture of European Jewry. Uh, I think it's so important, you know, not, not to privilege one over the other, you know, to, to tell the full uh, story of the Jewish people. We need to tell it from all angles. And by the way, there's even more beyond that, you know, we sort of had this binary Sephardi Ashkenazi world, but there are so many other communities which don't fall into really either category. And I think it's important that really um, today our children, whether it's in Israel, the US, England, France, are taught about Jewish history as a whole, with all its different composite parts. When we talk about Jewish poetry, we give Ashkenazi poets, we give Sephardi poets, or Mizrahi poets, or whatever it is. When we talk about Jewish music, Jewish food, we don't automatically go to bagel and locks, gefilter fish, you know, Yiddish. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's it, that's part of it, absolutely. I'm not looking to replace, I'm not looking to privilege uh, non-Ashkenazi culture over Ashkenazi. It needs to be given equal weight, I believe. And this poll, uh, I believe, will show that Israelis, at least from all backgrounds, because we also ask them how they self-identify, so it's important to break that down as well, that there should be greater parity given. And, and, and I, you know, there are some who say, well, that's a weakness. We're all Jews. You know, I, I hear this so often. You know, we're all Jews. Why do you care so much? Because I think the strength, I think, I think Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said it very uh, he, he made a great comment. He said, diversity is a strength, it's not a weakness. And I think it's important to tell uh, all these different shades of Jewish history and Jewish culture, because without it, we're not one people. Uh, if we only tell one story, then we only look at ourselves and our history through the one prism. And I think it's important we give as much as possible because I think that's what makes us strong. We did go through 2000 or 2500 years or whatever it is, of diaspora. And I don't think we should forget that. I think we should try and unify as a people, but not forgetting our history. If we're going to go into the future together, it's important that we come with a strong identity, that we come with strong awareness 
And education is so important. But, and if our educational systems and structures are letting us down, we need to make them better. And we need to go to the people whose decisions make will make it better and say to them, there's, there are gaps here. And it's so important that we fill these gaps and we make sure that the Israeli education system, which according to this poll is not giving sufficient attention to the story of Middle East and North Africa Jewry, even though they're the majority of people in this country, it's important that they uh, important take point. notice and add it. Yeah, it's an important point. When people think of Israel, they usually like to sort of superimpose what they know Jews to be locally. And in the US and the UK and most places outside of France and the West, the vast majority are Ashkenazim, Central and Eastern European. But Israel is not. The majority of Jews have a history in the Middle East and North Africa. So it's important that this is, first of all, understood. And also, what is that history? You know, for me, just some of the outrages, and, and, and I don't blame any one person. I remember a few years ago, there was, I believe, postage stamps, new postage stamps in Israel uh, being put out. And I think there was four or five or six poets, and all of them were Ashkenazi. And there was a bit of a, I, I remember, I think uh, some people in Shas made a big stink of it or whatever. I said, what, you know, there was only Ashkenazi poets. And I remember Prime Minister at the time, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, whose father was a great historian. Yeah. who said, oh, next time we'll add Yudha Levi. And I was thinking, okay. The, the poet. So that's, no, that, that's great, yes. Yeah. That, are you trying to say that in 800 years since then, there has not been a single non-Ashkenazi poet? I mean, you know, the, the Ashkenazi poets that they were putting on stamps were all in the last 100, 150 years. Ah, okay. And it says something, but it says something that even someone whose father was a historian of Sephardic history, Granted, it was more in the Inquisition time, but still could not think of a single poet outside of Ashkenaz for 800 years. I think there's a problem in our education when the prime minister uh, is saying this. And I don't blame him. You know, there, there are many examples I could give, but I think this needs to change. No, I definitely agree with you. Definitely. I think it enhances the Jewish story as well. When you're talking about Purim, you want to talk about the Iranian experience or the Persian experience leading into Absolutely. it. It's part of our history. It's part of the greater narrative. And that's what you've been saying all along. And I really appreciate it. Um, so I really, really appreciate your time and speaking with us and telling us, sharing from your story. And we wish you much success in all of your endeavors. And we are proud to be part of some of them and hope to be part of more. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Have a wonderful rest of your night. <laughs> and you. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.